0: Welcome to The Shape of Dialogue. Threats to freedom of speech, writing and action, though often trivial in isolation, are cumulative in their effect, and unless checked, lead to a general disrespect for the rights of the citizen. George Orwell. In July 2018, Auckland Council barred two Canadian internet personalities, Lauren Southern and Stephane Molyneux, from using a council-owned venue for their event. The following week, Massey University's Vice-Chancellor, Jan Thomas, banned a prominent New Zealand ex-politician, Don Brash, from speaking on campus. Mr Brash has been Governor of the Reserve Bank and a leader of one of New Zealand's major political parties. Both Auckland Council and Massey University cited health and safety and security as the reasons to ban the speakers. However, the health and safety coverall lacked credibility as none of the speakers had any history of causing risks to health, safety, or security at public events. One suspects the more probable reasons for the bannings was that both institutions deemed their speech impermissible. Auckland's mayor, Phil Goff was less opaque when he tweeted, Auckland council venues shouldn't be used to stir up ethnic or religious tensions Views that divide rather than unite are repugnant, and I have made my views on this very clear. Lauren Southern and Stefan Molyneux will not be speaking at any council venues. It is both surprising and concerning that a mayor would have any public views on the matter at all. Anointing himself as the arbiter of what citizens may hear and whom they may associate with disturbingly echoes totalitarian techniques for silencing debate. Thankfully, in Don Brash's case, sanity prevailed. Vice-Chancellor Thomas was justifiably censured, and Mr Brash was re-invited to speak to Massey University's politics department. But the Canadian pair were unable to secure a venue for their event. Freedom of speech poses a perennial dilemma. How to allow ideas and speech that are offensive and unsayable for most to be aired publicly? The key to the conundrum is not for authorities to restrict citizens' rights by acting as gatekeepers of allowable speech, but for individuals to speak and hear whatever they like as long as it doesn't call for violence or breach the laws of the land. The disinfectant of sunlight is more likely to mitigate the so-called objectionable ideas than any prohibition. Bannings inevitably have the unintentional consequence of adding notoriety and amplification to the speaker's message, ironically thwarting the prohibitioner's attempts to suppress the speech. Public institutions are not there to protect us from ourselves, but to ensure our primary rights to speak, associate and partake in any law-abiding activity we like. Western societies are more than robust enough to withstand words spoken by some saying things that others find unsayable. In an open society we have both the costs and benefits of encountering a diversity of views and ideas. There is no law of nature stipulating that all speech should align in lockstep with the general consensus, nor would it be advantageous if it did. Some speech may well be repugnant, unpalatable and blatantly wrong, but that is the cost we bear to maintain what less free societies yearn for, to be able to express oneself freely. Many of Western society's advances that we now take for granted have sprung from thinkers going against the tide, voicing shortcomings of the norms of their day. As history shows, society has many failings, And without freedom of speech, it's very difficult for corrective measures to emerge from beneath the heavy weight of culture and custom. But, like all things, there are no cost-neutral positions. The self-anointed institutional gatekeepers can act to constrain certain forms of expression they deem impermissible, repugnant and uninformed. But the problem in doing so is these actions a blunt instruments that often cause collateral damage that affects the rights of the citizenry and diminish, rather than enhance, open dialogue? The gatekeepers assume an authority they're not qualified to wield, attempting to perform a task that's too great for any cadre to accomplish. They lack the required impartiality and distributed societal knowledge that's required to surgically perform the Herculean task of working out who should say what, to whom, and when, without any negative consequences occurring. The free speech absolutist allows the chips to fall where they may, and for discourse to winnow out the bad ideas. The problem with this solution is the populace can be exposed to views that may not be conducive to a healthy society and that can gain unwelcome traction amongst certain sections of the community, affecting social cohesion. The question is, which option has the least costs for the most benefits? As history shows, more problems tend to accrue from centralised and hierarchical concentrations of power, as the extreme examples of communism and fascism demonstrate. Power structures that are dispersed and distributed throughout the community tend to be fairer, more open and more flexible in comparison. Allowing free speech to reign supreme decentralises and aggregates the millions of daily decisions of who can say what to whom and when, allowing adults the freedom to be open to any lawful ideas and activities they like. The fundamental premise underlying Western democracy is that adults are responsible, autonomous beings capable of making choices. This is exemplified in the act of voting itself. If an adult is capable of voting, they therefore have the freedom to imbibe any lawful thoughts, concepts and opinions they wish. Anything less is an unjustifiable diminishment of an individual's rights by self-anointed gatekeepers of allowable speech who patronisingly assume they know what is best for their fellow citizens. Often, arguments against free speech make claims that speech can be violence. This postmodernist misconstrual is logically incoherent. Speech is speech, violence is violence. No amount of word magic will make one the other. Ad hominem insults, profanities and epithets of any kind do not qualify as violent acts. Rather, they are simply words of abuse. Bludgeoning, murder, rape, stabbing, lynching and summary execution are but a few classic examples of actions that inflict physical bodily harm, i.e. violence. This is not to say that words can't be hurtful to feelings or damaging to one's well-being. History is replete with examples of language that is detrimental to certain members of society. But the difference is clear, the recipient of any verbal abuse has the cognitive choice to take offence or not, and has options to finding workarounds to foil the abuser's prejudice, the American civil rights movement being a case in point. Philosopher John Stuart Mill pointed out there is a clear distinction between harm and mere offence. Offence tends to be minor and ephemeral in comparison. When violence is perpetrated, there is no choice for the sufferer to walk away unscathed. A blow to the head or being cudgeled to death is not something one can easily rationalise out of existence. The old adage, sticks and stones will break my bones but words will never hurt me, clarifies the difference. Words to incite violence breach rights to freedom of speech. Although words of incitement are not violence in themselves, they can lead to bodily harm of others, having a direct causal relationship between the words and the violence. This is why incitement to violence is unlawful. Finding a correlation between words of incitement and physical harm does not make speech equivalent to violence, but shows us that there is a verbal line that, if crossed, can lead to unacceptable outcomes. Calls for limits on freedom of speech often hinge on an admirable concern for societies less fortunate. To quote Auckland's mayor again, views that divide rather than unite are repugnant. The mayor's obvious concern for minority groups is commendable, but it's incoherent to assert that a sensation of repugnance should lead to the banning of speech. Much of human existence is coming into contact with things disagreeable and abrasive. Lawful discourse, whether polite or offensive, true or false, pleasant or repugnant, strengthens the body politic in the same way that bones are strengthened through vigorous use. Without lawful speech that tests the evolved norms, citizens can be trapped in a hermetically sealed echo chamber that limits their access to what is true. As such, it can be very hard to determine whether heterodox or heretical speech is just outright wrong Or is an original insight. Knowledge is a discovery process and we inhabit an epistemological maze with many dead ends and wrong turns. To work out the best pathway forward often requires turning down a myriad of cul-de-sacs that lead nowhere. To discover what is true we also have to discover its opposite, what is not true and be able to delineate the difference. The more open the speech environment, the more access we have to information, which can enable us to better decipher the contrast between falsehoods and truth. The less reliance we have on constrained and centralized mechanisms for the dissemination of information, the better. Centralized structures have a greater propensity to narrow the discourse and information stream as our current legacy media outlets demonstrate compared to the open source structure of the internet, resonating closely with the analogue of the effects of the printing press. To limit what can be said, inevitably affects the whole speech environment and if taken to extremes, constrains valuable speech and thinking. For every dual mind, much surrounding dirt is dug. This analogy applies to speech. Opening the floodgates is our best mechanism to discover the few pearls of wisdom that are worth retaining. If we are to benefit from an open and resilient society, the cost we must bear is allowing speech that many, including mayors of major cities, will find distasteful. The real test of our adherence to free speech is for lawful expression that causes the most cognitive dissonance and displeasure to be openly vented. Anything less than this is the classic hypocritical pretense of I believe in free speech, but where claims to freedom of speech halt at the very first instance of language that falls outside the Overton window, the range of ideas that are deemed publicly acceptable. It's not the defence of speech that adheres to the consensus that matters. It's the speech that most vehemently disagrees with the consensus that counts. There are no medals for bravery, for going with the mob rule of consensus by defending speech which is pleasant, innocuous, and inoffensive, and most of us agree with. The real test is to defend the right of others to speak lawful but highly offensive and repugnant language. Cowardly virtue signalling by railing against so-called unspeakable speech does nothing to strengthen our society. The difficult and therefore most interesting aspect of free speech is where we draw the limits on what can and can't be said publicly. Firstly, there are the limitations defined by laws. These vary between jurisdictions, but in Western democracies the common premise is that you can say what you want as long as it doesn't incite harm to others or insult others for their immutable traits. Whether you agree with this or not, it has the effect of laying down the basic ground rules for a relatively polite public discourse. Then there are the social limitations on what can be said. Many of the ideas that have nudged societies forward were not welcomed in their own times. Classic figures such as Socrates, Galileo and Giordano Bruno all bore the brunt of society's repugnance for their work. Heterodox thinkers, iconoclists, Contrarians, whistleblowers, dissidents, non-conformists, heretics, and the like, historically have breached the social constraints of allowable speech and action. Concepts that are counter to the pre-existing societal norms and traditions really are accepted with open arms, as civil rights activist Rosa Parks famously discovered on a Montgomery bus in 1955. Maintaining the widest parameters and the broadest template for a diversity of ideas helps to ensure we don't fall into the same traps our predecessors did. No one benefits if we dismiss pertinent criticisms of society's flaws or miss out on valid opportunities to rethink our future. The thinking that enhances society often emerges not from a sudden mass awakening by the populace, with the speedy adoption of new cultural innovations, but tends to spring forth from an individual or small group going against the grain articulating new ideas and new ways of doing things, which eventually enhances human flourishing. The more narrow the boundaries of allowable speech, the less likely and slower any positive adaptions will occur. A society that casts the widest net for ideas is logically more likely to benefit from such a diversity of thinking. But inevitably, any open system will be prone to a degree of randomness, volatility and confusion from such a mechanism. As the ancient Chinese proverb says, When you open the doors wide, the rats and mice will also come in. Institutional gatekeepers have an inclination to believe they can constrain what they deem is bad thought. Unfortunately, all they are likely to do is drive the so-called bad thought and its proponents underground. There will always be a percentage of the population who hold counterproductive views, and allowing them to be aired publicly means that we know who is espousing such ideas and what they are saying. It's far better to know who is perpetrating antisocial notions and provide the necessary counterbalance to any retrograde thinking than give it notoriety and amplification by forcing it underground. No one knows where the next good idea will come from. Life would be a lot easier and more predictable if we did. Limits to freedom of speech inevitably curtail the potential for the next good idea to bubble up to the surface. New ideas often contradict common conventions and undercut vested interests. Without freedom of speech, negative imperatives will increase the likelihood that more good ideas remain dormant for far longer than they otherwise would. Freedom of speech is also a defence against the human propensity for might-is-right outcomes. From Socrates onwards, Western societies have developed to value dialogue over raw physical power as the best way to solve the permanent human dilemmas of allocating resources, getting on with each other and finding new pathways forward. Freedom of speech is a fundamental tool that invigorates a society and also enables the best ideas to emerge, preventing societal rigor mortis and ossification. But in a constrained speech ecosystem, discourse tends towards the anodyne, a language devoid of sharp edges and straight-jacketed into dogmatic conformity. Today, political correctness has recreated a stifled speech environment reminiscent of authoritarian times past. Freethinkers now have to navigate terrain littered with speech tripwires and ideological minefields that, if activated, result in social penalties that are often asymmetric to the perceived speech transgression or, as George Orwell referred to them, thought crimes. Citizens have to be mindful of what they say, write or think, fearful of saying the wrong word, phrase or colloquialism deemed offensive, insensitive, racist, sexist, homophobic, anti-immigrant, Islamophobic and now transphobic. With the invention of social media, the apparatus of an avalanche of mass offence and disapproval can be targeted at anyone who crosses the politically incorrect line. This creates a zeitgeist of self-censorship that resonates with the experiences of people living under the communist regimes of Eastern Europe. The iconic comedian George Carlin was prescient when he said, Political correctness is the newest form of intolerance And is especially pernicious because it comes disguised as tolerance. It presents itself as fairness, yet attempts to restrict and control people's language with strict codes and rigid rules. I'm not sure silencing people and forcing them to alter their speech is the best method for solving problems that go much deeper than speech. But most importantly of all, freedom of speech has a crucial epistemological function, making space for as many ideas as possible to be put on the table for consideration. Philosopher John Stuart Mill stated in his seminal work On Liberty, in characteristically Victorian prose, The only way in which a human being can make some approach to knowing the whole of a subject is by hearing what can be said about it by persons of every variety of opinion and studying all modes in which it can be looked at by every character of mind. No wise man ever acquired his wisdom in any mode but this, nor is it in the nature of human intellect to become wise in any other manner. My first guest is world-renowned political and moral philosopher, University of Otago's emeritus professor, James Flynn. In the second Shape of Dialogue podcast, you will hear Professor Flynn define what freedom of speech is and why it's so important to us all. And in the third Shape of Dialogue podcast, you can hear Simon Wilson, who is one of New Zealand's top journalists and a leading writer at the New Zealand Herald, give quite a different perspective. I hope you enjoy listening to them.